Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. I am one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, alongside Paul Gillieri. Hello, sir. How are you, Jason? I'm lovely. I'm drinking a fabulous Einstock beer uh, fresh from Iceland. What are you drinking? I'm going with a little scotch tonight, buddy. For the inaugural podcast, deserves nothing less but uh, Scotland's finest. I can appreciate that. And I'm sure in later podcasts, I too will have a lovely snifter of the juicy honey from the Scottish Isle. Next uh, but first off, guts, buddy. <laughs> let's uh, let's start things here um, on our first show with a little bit of a backstory, um, and I wanted to talk about uh, where we first uh, heard Pearl Jam, what our how we got into the band. This is a podcast for people, obviously, who are mega fans, um, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things over the course of these shows. Um, lyrics of the week that we'll pick and just kind of focus on the lyric. We'll we'll talk about your favorite live cuts of every single song and, you know, the main topics of each week. But this week I want to start with, well, well, how did we get into the band? And I'll let you lead things off. Well, <clears throat> you know, when I think back to my introduction to Pearl Jam, it was uh, probably right before, before Versus came out, actually, it was kind of that, that in-between window where 10 was kind of still at the peak of its powers, but Versus was this highly anticipated release. And a friend of mine, I was in junior high at the time, so a friend of mine actually said, hey, you got you to gotta hear this CD, man. It's, it's awesome. You're going to love this. So he gives a CD to me, and, and I'll never forget, at the time, I, I owned three CDs that... Uh, that I was playing all the time. So one was Aerosmith's Pump, right? I think that great was 89. Album. The other one was a great album, uh, Metallica Black Album. Classic. Uh, also, great album, classic. And, and then my buddy gives me Pearl Jam 10. And so I pop it in and, and you know, you get this weird kind of Slave Master intro with once. And I was, at that point, I was highly debating whether or not my friend even understood the concept of music at the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that was a very unconventional way to open an album, let alone the Can I tell you right now, before, just a sidebar, I actually thought the song started with Master for the longest time. And I'm like, hey, where's that opening part? When they play it live, I'm like, oh, oh it's, not, it's not part of the song. It's, it's not oh. part of the song. Exactly, right. So eventually that, that riff just cuts in and it hooked me immediately. And at that point, I was thinking to myself, I've never heard of something like this. I mean, my dad has a massive catalog of music. I mean, he probably has enough records to literally span the distance from my place to your place, which, although we don't live that far apart, it's far enough apart where that'd be a shit. A lot of records. Yeah, a lot of records. So I've heard a lot of rock and roll in my day. I mean, I think his first album was like, Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland or something. I mean, he's a huge Kiss fan, um, big Zeppelin fan. So I kind of grew up with that sound just in my house all the time. And that's a good education. It was a great education, you know. And when I popped that album in, 
and that riff just cut that's in, it really just grabbed me in a way that felt evolutionary. And I say that because if you think about what Pearl Jam did, they didn't repurpose 70s rock. I feel like they absorbed it and then they just kind of rose from the ashes of it like a phoenix in a weird sort of way because they were they were filling the void, I feel, for... I mean, I remember being in high school and you know looking through the paper and seeing all these old school 70s bands playing like Canuck Die Harbor. And you know, it, was, it was this... Mm-hmm. Almost like a lame, um, you know, ensemble cast of bands w- that would just all get together and they play their one or two or three hits. And, and uh, that sound just didn't have a place to go anymore, you know? And I, yeah. I loved what Pearl Jam did in the sense that they came in at an era where Michael Jackson was still kind of topping the charts and then Guns N' Roses came and just dethroned that. And then you kind of had this, this, battle going on between rock and pop and then nirvana came in out of nowhere with a left hook and just obliterated that and it kind of left this barren i don't know barren's the wrong word but it left this kind of opportunity this open window for a sound to emerge and that sound to me was not derivative that sound to me was fresh that sound to me felt uh, the word i used was evolutionary it just felt like it was the next step in the kind of music that I had grown up listening to. So that riff cuts in and I absolutely loved it. And uh, funny enough, I start listening to the rest of the album and every track is just, you know, connecting, it's hitting with me. And then I get to track number five and Black Place. And, you know, I wasn't of an age at that point in time to truly appreciate both lyrically and sonically what that song represented. And I... I got, I don't know, maybe a minute and 30 into the song at best, and I just skip, you know, on to Jeremy. You got to uh, legs spread wide open, and you moved right along. Uh, you, <laughs> well, that, that part didn't alienate me, but, you know, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the idea of, like, a slow jam type of song. I, right. Just, it, if I was, it had to be acoustic for me for some reason. 13-year-old you wasn't really digging that. No, nah, I wasn't digging that, and I just wasn't ready for that. And I don't know how many weeks or months went by where I finally said, you know what? I'm just going to let this thing play all the way through. And I, I finally got to like the chorus of the song. And I said, wow, man, that's a really interesting chord change. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit with this for a bit and I let it play some more. And then the song slowly started to escalate in a, a way that reminded me a lot of uh, Stairway to Heaven. Mm. Not in the sense that you have different instruments coming in at, at various intervals, but just in terms of like this epic escalation of and, and swelling of feeling. And then they get into that that end, you know, that whole sequence at the end, you know, and it just it hooked me. And so it, it today is still my favorite Pearl Jam song. And there's just a great irony that my wife continues to rib me about that the song that I didn't even want to listen to i wouldn't even allow to finish a song that arguably at the time i would say was my least favorite song on the album when i was a kid has grown to become what i would call probably my favorite pearl jam song on any album ever wow look at that yeah that's um it's funny black uh was it was a signal a signal oh my god it was a single but it wasn't something that i necessarily latched onto right away either. Um, 
my beginning kind of came from I was at a summer camp in 1992 and uh, board games, playing basketball, kickball, as you do. And uh, we had a, always had a radio on playing whatever station. This is in the uh, the Hartford, Connecticut area. So I'm trying to, I think it was probably WCCC back in the day when they were still playing rock music. And Jeremy came on. And I remember hearing Jeremy, especially the outro, the last you know 90 seconds of the song and thinking, holy hell, that is so incredibly powerful. And then, because I think it was, it was like the second or third single, right? Because I believe, uh, I believe Alive was first and then even right, Float and Jeremy. Even flow, yeah. So I remember going home and be like, holy, man, that was incredible. Um, who is this? And going and like asking friends. Remember, there's no internet, of course. So you go to school the next day. And what's this? What's this Jeremy song? Oh, it's Pearl Jam. I'm like, oh, oh, they, go, oh, they, have, they, have, they have a song Alive too. I go alive, and so I went to a buddy's house, and he had the the ten record or the CD. He puts it on. I go, oh, yeah, I know that live song, cool. And so I just knew those two songs, and then I went in, on MTV one day as a twelve year old, and uh, you know the Jeremy. It's funny enough, you know, they ha- they have like you know four videos all time, but one really true video, and that was the Jeremy video with True Direction. You know, notwithstanding uh, evolution and life wasted and stuff like that, but um, thinking, wow, everything I felt about this song is like quadrupled now. This is so powerful. Let me listen to the entire album. Bang! They're all bangers. I loved it. Even Black. I was like, this is for the same reasons you just said. It just crescendos to the end so powerfully, and so I was excited for that record and didn't even realize verses had come out maybe like six months later. I was just still so engrossed. I didn't even know as a 12, 13 year old. And then I, oh wait, what, what, what's this stuff? Daughter and, and go and animals. This is awesome. Um, and that just kind of elevated it even more. Come to find out, you know, next year when Vitalogy comes out, I asked a buddy, go, oh, hey, isn't there a new Proton out? He's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's weird. It's not really good. I'm like, oh, okay. I took his word for it and didn't listen to Vitalogy. And I go, obviously now I'm like, what, what's wrong with me? And somehow that kind of, Kind of, kind of lingered through the next few years, and even when No Code came out, a buddy of mine was like, "Yeah, it's 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 whatever. It's not very good." And I was like, oh, "Okay." Again, took my friend's word for it. That was stupid. Um, and it wasn't until Yield came out in '98, my buddy put it on in his mom's car. We got we got picked up from somewhere, puts on Yield, and I go, "Whoa, Brain of Jay, what is this?" And then we listened to the whole record the whole way through, the whole CD. And my very first show was that was that tour in Hartford, um, which by the way is famous for being in the liner notes of Live on Two Legs because the Hartford security were, were a bunch of pricks that day. But um, that kind of reignited the fuel and it's been a, a, an absolute mad dash of love uh, since then. Oh, it's funny you mentioned the word love because you literally had a love affair with Pearl Jam. I mean, it's boy yeah. meets girl, boy loses girl. Boy gets, boy gets girl back, right? It's boy, boy meets Pearl Jam. Boy loses Pearl. That's Jam. true. Boy gets Pearl Jam back. That's fair. And it is very different for me because you know we grew up in an era where we could have very easily discovered this band through MTV, and so you have a video like uh, Jeremy that was not only was it iconic, but it seemed to capture in a lot of ways. I mean, okay, so for the band, it did not capture the angst of being a teenager at the time necessarily. I, mean, I, I think you know Eddie read an article. And uh, it inspired him to write a song that basically said, hey, you know, what this kid did, it, 
it doesn't speak. You know what I mean? You, th- that statement does not echo through eternity. You're not going to redefine yourself or make some type of grandiose statement doing something like this. Um, so I, I think in a lot of ways it was, it was kind of like an answer to a call to, for help. Uh, but at the same time as a video, just the, the aggression, the rage, the, the way that they, uh, you know, captured him as a front man, it, it made a star out of the band. Well, yeah, especially that, you know, I don't think that my fandom would have changed um, too, too much without seeing the video, but the video really cemented, you know, th- those low, those low shots, or, or we call them God shots in the biz, you know, and then the TV business and when that, that camera was really low and kind of panning around him as he's singing and you see his eyes and just, you know, for a band that didn't want to do videos, somehow he managed to get into that, mindset and moment and you could you could just see the song through his eyes you don't have to even hear it um and i mean talk we could talk about eddie vetter for a long time and i'm sure we'll have shows about it uh, about him but that kind of drew me in when when you're a preteen or a teenager and you have those hormones racing you know racing through your veins and there are certain things that really it's more more easy for you to latch on to. And if you're in a troubled situation or you're frustrated or maybe your friends have left town and you're, you're all alone or you're in a new place. I mean, I'm, I, I moved when I was 13. Um, so it was like the, basically the next year I moved to a completely different town. And it's that kind of stuff. I, that along with like the, the first Bush record and then the first live record or not mental jewelry, but the um, from a copper record. Like the, copper, the yeah. record, they're really stuck to me because there is a certain level of angst and, and, kind of getting that out of your system in a healthy way kind of thing. And I was like, I latched onto that. Uh, and I, I could see, you know, even to this day, that stuff is a, it's, it's almost like church in psychology in one, when you go to a show and you, yeah. you hear Jeremy again, and you go, okay, I got that out. Now yeah. I can get, now I want to experience, you know, the happiness or the love side and they'll, they'll bust out a song that completely, yeah. it's that kind of thing. You know, what's interesting about this too is that, you know, you, you talked about this, how it spoke to you on an emotional level. And I, I think about just the aggression and the angst of those early albums and how it spoke to America's youth at the time and how that whole movement in Seattle, you know, I mean, the, the folks call it grunge. I mean, you talk to the bands and they won't call it grunge, but this grunge movement, if we will, uh, What's interesting to me is is uh, I was drawn to the aggression, uh, aggression, pardon me, as well. But I don't even, I didn't really have anything to be angry about. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I look back at my life now, I didn't, I didn't have an upbringing that necessarily reflected anything that should imply, suggest, or even support this this massive outcry, this this in indignation. You know. And, uh, and I think that is what the band's music truly spoke to was young people who were angry and didn't understand why they were angry and, and almost felt like there wasn't any validation. F- right. Or, That's the key. For having the right to be angry. And you know, I read a, a guy, what was it? A Eckhart Tolle or one of those uh, transcendental, you know, spiritualist writers in the last couple of years. He said something about how at that age, when you are, you know, a teenager, you, you really are governed by ego and ego is essentially fed through want. 
And so every person has an ego and the ego feeds off of want. You know, I want a new car. I want this girl. I want this new haircut. I want this. I want that. And anytime you're not getting those wants realized, it creates angst. And so, you know, as you grow older, you begin to learn to govern ego instead of allowing ego to govern you, or in theory, hopefully we all, we all get to that point, uh, as we mature. But when I was younger, I knew that I wanted, I knew what I wanted, but then at the same time, I wasn't sure if what I wanted was actually what I should want, or even if, if it was what I actually wanted, and would want later on. Well, and have, so here's the thing is you, you have, when you are that age, you have so many questions. You are told so many things by authority figures. You, you naturally want to rebel a little bit to some degree. You mm-hmm. just have a ton, a ton of questions. What's happening to exactly. me? Why doesn't that girl like me? Why doesn't that dude like me? You know, uh, why, 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 why? I mean, there's literally a fucking song called why go. Exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> questions. And, and, and if they, are answered at least on an emotional plane because of music, then you're going to latch on to that. Exactly. And it becomes a coping mechanism, right? Because I'm listening to this music and it's speaking to me and, and in an interesting sort of way, just to type back to the origins of Pearl Jam, you know, if I go back to Mother Love Bone, uh, Man of Golden Words, right? It was an Andrew Wood song. And there's a lyric in that song where he says, music is the universal language. And I I can't help but think that these questions were not being answered by the band. They weren't being answered musically or lyrically necessarily. However, there was a dialogue happening. You had a a population, you had a demographic that felt that um, was affected, and then you had music that responded. And it didn't matter if the music had answers because I don't think at that age you're necessary. See, we think we're looking for answers at that age. We're not. I think we're just looking for someone to relate to. We're looking for somebody to answer. We're looking for somebody to respond. To listen. Exactly. And the music responded to those feelings in a way that made the listener feel heard. And um, the music didn't solve. No problems. The music didn't provide answers, but the music listened and the music responded and it made me as, as, as somebody who lived in that era and, and was growing up at a time where I was feeling that, that confusion and that angst, I felt heard by the, by, by the sound, you know, and it's, it's, it's magnetic, it's infectious and you just can't help but not, you know, gravitate towards that. It's uh, it's funny you say that because you're making a, a lovely allusion to our lyric of the week, which will come up a little bit later. Um, but I think that's a good place to kind of put a pin in it and and move on. And we have um, our next bit here, and um, it's called "What If." So I'm, I'm going to throw you a curveball here, Jason. Okay, hit me. What do okay, we got? So we've been blessed with Matt Cameron as a drummer. Oh, for no, here we go. Well over over <laughs> 10 years now. Um, 20 years, but, I think, almost. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if, if you, what did he come in? 22 uh, years. Was the, the, he did not record Yield. That Correct, was, but he was on the tour. But he was on the tour. So Maui. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the what if. 
What if the band had never fired Dave? We're talking about Dave Aprizisi. Uh-huh. Not what Dave if Cruz. the band had never fired Dave? What if the band... Uh, they would have broken up. Yeah. Do you up. think so? Yes. Um, Eddie famously did not care for, did not care for Dave. Um, one example being the song glorified G. Um, if you could take those people and extrapolate them into 2020 terms, um, assuming there was no human evolution between the two of them, or between Dave, at least, um, you would have Dave as some sort of Trump voter probably. Um, and that, and I'm not making a judgment call there. I'm just saying that seemed to be the kind of person that he was in that moment, um, based on what others were saying about him. Um, especially as evidenced by that song glorified G. So I think that if they had kept him, they probably wouldn't have lasted a few more years. Yeah. And I don't so, know. I don't know that vitality. Well, I don't know that. Well, no code doesn't get made for sure. No, um, not, not in that capacity. He, he with wouldn't that allow sound for that. I mean, it's, it's possible. They probably put out one more record and it's dog shit. And then they just kind of like, ah, okay, it is my initial reaction. What say you? I'm inclined to agree with you that the band is probably not with us today. However, um, I don't think necessarily that it was political or even. Um, I think those two were, were just opposite characters. Not that they, it was they, political. They were, but for, from what I've read and my interpretation of it is that I, I, I can't help but think that Dave, he wanted to be a rock star. Yes. He, he, there was something about that that was attractive. You know, uh, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, he's probably watching and having conversations with, with people that just telling them what it was like, you know, in the Motley Crue scene here in LA and, and you can see Nikki six and him getting, you, you, you can totally see that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, I, I can't help but think that he, he was that element in the band and Eddie was, you know, he'd play a show and he'd go home and he'd, he'd want to call Neil Young and he'd want, <laughs> you know, he'd want to, he'd want to reflect and he'd want to think about, you know, his place in society and he'd want to reject its importance and its relevance. And here was Dave being like, dude, like, this is awesome. Like, why can't you just enjoy the moment and bring some chicks home and party, you know? You know what's and funny about that is that, oh my God, it's so right. The, the funny thing is that, um, Eddie, uh, most recently on the Bill Simmons podcast, was speaking about Dennis Rodman and said that Dennis Rodman, um, on at least one occasion, convinced him after um, a Bulls game to fly to Vegas to go see Jane's Addiction and then fly right back the same night because I think the Bulls were playing the Sonics. And so they, and Eddie was like, nah, nah. Uh, I thought I was just going to meet you in the lobby. We we're going to read together. And Dennis was like, no. And uh, Phil Jackson apparently tells him, you know, please keep him in line. And, but they go to the game and they go to the show down in Vegas and fly back. And like it felt when Eddie was t- telling the story, it felt like he was going against his his um, better nature, better nature, you know, because yeah. like you say, that's the kind of person that he was. Is he was, you know, this is like, you know, 97, 98, it's a little bit later, but, you know, a few years earlier, they obviously actively went away from away from fame and all that thing. I mean, Jeff has said that he, 
you know, went out to Montana for months at a time and didn't really tell the band. And that's part of the whole late nineties drama about, you know, possibly breaking up kind of thing that they were just kind of in their own head spaces. But yeah, weird times. Well, it's funny because that moment you could argue, and I thought you hit the nail on the head. You could argue that, uh, the Pearl Jam would not be, not only would they not be the band they are today, they would not be a band at all. Right without that moment. And so, you know, there's a compelling argument that, that says that that is arguably the most pivotal moment in the band's career absent, you know, a cassette tape finding its way to Eddie Vedder at a gas station. You know, I mean, it's, and I say that for the reasons aforementioned, but also thematically because Everything that, that if you listen to the first two albums, everything about that band was rejecting that whole rock and roll, you know, uh, superstar. I mean, look at the alive video the culture. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this so is the rock I, show. The rock show. You know, yeah. it was it was about living in the moment, not about uh, living off the moment. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's on one hand, there's a part of me that grieves because there was something about Dave's drumming that I. I cherish, but on the other hand, um, I would not trade the music that we have received since that moment for anything in the world. So, uh, I think I will agree with you there. And I think we put a pin in that and move on to lyric of the week. All right, so the lyric of the week this week comes from the song Leash off of the album Verses. And here it is. Paul, what does that lyric mean to you? Well, it speaks on a few different levels. Uh, just to ground it in the here and now you and i are not recording this podcast anywhere near each other for a very specific reason <laughs> we are your father's record collection away yeah exactly my father's record collection away uh, covid19 man you 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 can't get around uh, the rona as the uh, the kids are calling it you know <clears throat> this lyric i think seems to encapsulate the prevailing attitude that I think a lot of us need to have right now. I am lost. I mean, because this is uncharted territory for all of us on so many levels from, you know, being home, trying to homeschool, trying, trying to make ends meet, trying to coexist in a house in a way that you've never had to do before. And in no way does this suggest that I don't love my kids or my wife because I adore both. But at the same time, I mean, I, I can only imagine how sick of me both of them are, <laughs> you know? And uh, the second part here, I'm no guide, you know? Because none of us have an answer to this, but I am by your side. And I, and I think that right now, through whatever mediums we can orchestrate and align, we have to find ways to connect. And I think that in the absence of human interaction in ways that we're familiar with, it's really crucial. It's really important that we continue to find ways to be social because there's, there's an element of cabin fever 
You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. you're at home and you're just so wrapped up in trying to flatten the curve that you forget the fact that it is entirely contrary to what it means to be human. And what's all, you know, in addition to that, what's also contrary is this entire conversation we're having to the actual meaning of the song. You know, when, when you think about that line it, within the context of the actual song and that framework, this celebration of, of youth, this celebration of being lost, of saying, hey, I don't know, you know, I'm 20, whatever. I don't know what the answers are. I'm no guide, you know, but I'm with you, man. I'm right here with you. I mean, there's something beautiful about that in the camaraderie of it. But at the same time, here we are reappropriating that to fit our needs today. In a similar fashion, the band took a song like Alive and completely reappropriated everything that that song meant, you know, and said, hey, after we lost so many at Rock Slide that we'll never know, right? Uh, this song now becomes a, a call of unity. It becomes a, a song to unite the entire arena together. And uh, it goes from being a song that, 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 that's very depressing and very dismal to a song that's celebratory. And in the same way, I find a, a song like Leash, at least this lyric, to be very appropriately timed. You know, and I, and I think this was the, literally that you could not have chosen a more perfect lyric for the times in which we, we live, my friend. Well, if, if I had to sum this lyric up in one word, it's empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I've read stories that this song is about, you know, a girl that Eddie knew that, you know, something happened and her parents put her in like a, a, a hospital or a mental place. And then when they, she came back, actually that first part's why go. And the second part of her coming home and being on a very tight, you know, quote unquote leash from her parents because they didn't trust her to, to make the right decisions or whatever the hell it was. That, that's kind of what I've read. You know, who knows what Eddie's really thinking. Um, but coming back to the lyric itself, it, it just comes back to empathy. It's like, I'm speaking, I, don't, I may not know you or maybe I am your friend. And it's like, I, I don't know what the hell is going on either. But uh, whatever it is, we'll go through it together and we'll figure this thing out. And community is the best uh, disinfectant, I guess, as it were. Yeah, and, and music is arguably the best form of connection. Ready? Well, with that, we should probably go to our live cut of the week. It is from Leash. Uh, Paul, which cut is it? So, uh, for those who are unaware, which would be everybody listening to this right now, (laughs) I have a uh, love, a little uh, hobby of mine where I essentially seek out what I feel is the best live cut of every Pearl Jam track. However, I have very, very specific guidelines. Uh, Rule number one, the track has to be from the era in which the song was recorded. So for example, uh, take Leash. Uh, I cannot take a version of Leash recorded in 2016. Uh, Leash was off of verses. And so I'm going to look for a version of the song from that era. And my, my reasoning behind that is there's a certain personalization of a song that happens where, and Alive is a great example. If I said, hey, 
my favorite version of Alive happened in 2008. And it, it, you know, because now the song means this to the band and therefore it means this to me as a fan. There's something beautiful about that. And, and I don't reject that. However, when the song was composed, when the song was added into the uh, rotation in American culture, in American culture, pardon me, it meant something different. Uh, it meant something different to those who heard it for the first time. And while a song can evolve, while a song can mean different things to different people, and, and that meaning can continue to augment and then change and alter itself over time, and that is worth celebrating and acknowledging, I believe that if you're going to try to find the best version of a song, you really should try to at least first capture what the song meant to its listeners at the time. So this particular version of Leash, uh, I decided to take off of the first From the Vault edition. What's the date on that lovely concert? Good question. That is from January 17th, 1992. This is Leash at the Moore Theater. And that brings me to the second prerequisite of... uh, of these best of tracks, which would be sound quality. Uh, you know, for those of us who grew up in the bootleg era of, of Pearl Jam, where we were constantly looking for different bootlegs, there was a time where we would be scouring the internet for various uh, files of shows and they were graded on an ABC scale. And so A meaning it was soundboard quality, B meaning it was an audience recording, but it was pretty good. A minus sometimes fell into that category as well. And C was, uh, it was a brutal recording, but if you had to have it, this is probably the only thing that's out there. So when the band decided to actually come out and produce soundboard quality recordings, it was a really, really special occurrence. And uh, what's, what's fascinating about this entire affair is that the actual track itself from this particular show, uh, there was a, a great interview that, uh, the website Two Feet Thick did with Brett uh, Eliason. I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly. But uh, he had mentioned in that particular interview, this interview came out in 2011, actually. So if you just Google Two Feet Thick Brett Eliason, uh, and uh, I guess, uh, you know, The More, 1992, 1992, pardon me, you will uh, you'll get this, this wonderful interview here. And he, he kind of talks about how a lot of this, happened through happenstance it it wasn't necessarily something that they had the foresight to say hey we're going to end up releasing this show now what makes this show special is that this was the show that the live concert video of evenflow comes from so when you listen to that you know you watch that video of evenflow the, the, the video of evenflow is essentially a concert and it's from this particular show the more. And this cut of leash, I think, truly encapsulates everything that the song is about, at least in terms of the way it speaks to the generation of fans at that time. And if you're looking for a visual to accompany that, just watch the Evenflow video because you can truly see the connection the band had with its fans at the time and how that brand of music spoke to those sentiments at that time. And so for me, this, I think, is the quintessential version of of this particular song. All right. It's Leash, January 17th, 1992 in Seattle. Ah! 
So the best part of that to me is that the song isn't even officially out yet because it's before verses ever came out and it wasn't a single. That's wild. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. And and that brings me to the third prerequisite for these tracks <laughs> for me, which is, uh, you know, it, it could have superior sound quality. It can be from that era. But if it is a sloppy performance, if it's not I- iconic, if there's no story behind it, then it, it's going to fail to make the cut for me. And so for this particular show, the essence of that song, uh, I thought, was captured in that performance. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be faithful to the album cut, but it should at the very least be something that reflects the um, the spirit of the song. And I thought that that particular track, coming from that era, being of the qu- sound quality that it possesses, and essentially encompassing the spirit of the song and the way that it does, it's really hard to find a superior version of that song, you know, that features Eddie's growl, the aggression, the rage, the pacing of the song. You're not going to find that in necessarily a 2020 track, you know what I mean? Or a 2008 track. And I'm not saying that the band can't still continue to perform that song. I would love to hear it the next time (laughs) I see them play. But there's something about seeing that song and that era that really, really speaks and it echoes through the annals of time. And, and I think that's what makes that particular performance stand out. And as I mentioned before, the iconic element of it coming from the even flow video show, I thought was really special uh, because as you mentioned, it was a song that had not yet come out yet. And therefore it was a preview of where the band was going. And, and I thought that there's, something really there's always something beautiful about the band saying hey we're gonna we're gonna try our new song on you today you know and then they just drop it and hence drop the leash and and there we go and what's funny about that is that was the uh third to last song of the night um sandwich between porch and breath and the last song being baba o'reilly that was the first which was, time which was omitted actually because of technical uh, problems technical problems exactly. yes well uh good first episode i would say mr Gilliari. It was a pleasure, Jason. Inaugural episode in the bag, my friend. In the books. Uh, We will be back next week with another episode, another lyric of the week, another live cut of the week, and more fun surprises. Until next time. This is the state of love and trust. Love and trust.